It has worked out for us this year to set aside the entire month of April for an Easter season sermon series. And so that's what we're doing. We have already looked at Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday from the perspective of John's gospel, using John chapter 12 as a jumping off point for Jesus crushing the serpent's head on the cross in chapter 19, and a jumping off point for Jesus surviving the serpent's crushing of his heel in chapter 20. I'm confident now, after our study in Genesis, that you clearly see those as Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday fulfillments of God's gospel promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's interesting that no one actually witnessed, think about it, the moment of Jesus' resurrection. His dead body lay behind the stone in the tomb when God raised him from the dead. Then Jesus walked out. And what the disciples witnessed was the resurrected Lord Jesus as they encountered him in time and place. So I think from the disciples' experience, the resurrection was not so much a momentary event, although we can certainly look at it that way, but I think they might have seen it as an event that kind of lasted about 40 days. As over the next 40 days, they spent time with the resurrected Lord Jesus. If you were to ask them, If you could do a man-on-the-street interview with the disciples, if you were to ask them to tell you about Jesus' resurrection, I think that's that's kind of what they would say. They'd say, yes, uh, first Mary saw him, then the disciples, then Doubting Thomas, remember Doubting Thomas, and then the two on the road to Emmaus, and then there was one time when he cooked us a shore breakfast, a fish, that was good, and another time when there were 500 people gathered all at once. I think that's how they would describe their resurrection experience. And then at the end of those 40 days, Jesus ascended into heaven. If you would ask people today, what took place at Jesus' ascension? I think they would have very little to say. If you would ask Christians today, what took place at Jesus' ascension? I think you wouldn't hear much more. Oh, I think we would all say, well, that's, that's when Jesus ascended into heaven. If you're a good test taker, you learn to look for keywords in the question to help you with your answer. What happened in the ascension? I think Jesus went back to heaven, right? And that would certainly be right. But we might not hear much more than that. And one reason might be that the Bible doesn't have a lot to say about Jesus' ascension beyond, beyond eight verses in, in Acts chapter 1. But I'd like to suggest to you that the ascension is important to our understanding of the gospel and to our mission as a church. And I want to begin with Genesis. Put on your Genesis thinking caps. In Genesis chapter 28, Jacob dreamed of a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. You remember that. In this vision, God shows that he sends his messengers from heaven down to earth with his commands, and when the messengers of God complete their assigned tasks, they go back up to heaven. And when Jesus called Nathanael as one of his disciples in John chapter 1, he referenced that imagery and applied it to himself, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus tells his disciples that 
He has come to accomplish the command of God to eternal life. To become the way to heaven for sinners. God the Father has sent Jesus down from heaven with a command, with a mission to complete. Jesus went to the cross to bear the wrath of God for our sins upon himself. How do we know that? In his death on the cross, Jesus actually conquered our enemies of sin, death, and the devil. How do we know that? What evidence is there? The evidence of his resurrection from the dead. Sin and death and the devil could not hold him. He did what he said he would do. But how do we know that Jesus' mission is actually complete? How do we know that our sins are actually atoned for? How do we know that the Father who sent Jesus is fully satisfied with the work that Jesus has done on our behalf such that our sins will not be held against us and eternal life will be given to us? What is the evidence that that will take place? It is the evidence of his ascension. It is because Jesus has completed everything the Father sent him to do that he can return to the Father, having fully obeyed the Father's command. And the Father receives him back into his presence with full honors, mission completed and well done. In the language of John chapter 12, God glorified the Son of Man when he lifted him up on the cross, and God glorified the Son of Man when he again lifted him up in his ascension. Isn't that awesome? What a Savior. What an assurance from the Father and the Son that Jesus did not just ride off into the sunset, leaving us to wonder where he is. Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, God Almighty. He was received back, having completed the command successfully. And he did this all in the open for his church to see. There's much for us to understand about the ascension. If you want to take up your, your sermon outline, it'll help you. There's a sermon theme there. God the Father receives back into heaven Jesus, signaling that Jesus has fulfilled the life-giving mission that the Father had commanded of him. And Jesus promises his Holy Spirit to his church, which will carry on the Son's life-giving mission, his gospel commission. I want us to get to uh, Acts chapter 1, but before that we want to mention a few things. You'll remember, you'll remember from last Sunday in John chapter 20 that Jesus appears to the disciples and he says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. That's John's way of telling us that there's a handoff being made, right? There's a ministry that's going to continue, but it's changing. Luke makes this handoff, this transition, if you will, a little more obvious in his books, in his writings. Remember that Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. There are really one book in two volumes. The first volume is an orderly account of Jesus' direct gospel ministry. And the second volume is an account of Jesus' continuing but indirect gospel ministry through the acts of his spirit-filled church. Those are, the, those are the two pieces. So at the end of Luke's gospel, as we would expect, and at the beginning of Acts, we see this picture, we see this transition being made. Look, if you would, at Luke chapter 24, 
This is the last chapter of Luke's gospel. And, and let's just pick up in verse 44. We're near the very end of Luke's gospel. Then Jesus said, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This, this must have been an unbelievably joyful time for the disciples. I mean, we have to put on our sanctified imaginations and just think about it for a minute. How joyful were they to spend time with the resurrected Jesus Christ? After three years of walking with Jesus, they think they're going to Jerusalem in triumph. People are tossing their little palm fronds down in front of them as they enter the city, and then their world is shattered. Not, not the Roman leaders, but the church leaders, the religious leaders, arrest and judge and condemn and crucify Jesus. And they are hiding as fugitives, fearing for their lives. These are, these are their not triumphant and terrifying circumstances at that time. When Jesus appears to them, it just must have been joy because he's risen from the dead. He's back with us. These are glorious days, 40 days with the resurrected Jesus. And Jesus opens their minds in Bible study to see that the Old Testament scripture is all about him and his gospel. This is their foundational training to be his apostles. It's continuing in these 40 days. And if, if Peter later preaches, and he will, that Jesus is the Messiah who died and was resurrected from Psalm 16, and that he is God's king, greater than King David from Psalm 110, then we have high confidence that Jesus taught him that in this Bible study. Right? That was his training, and he went out and did it. So when we wonder, well, gosh, I wonder what they learned. Well, some of it's going to spill out in, the, in, in, their, in their ministry as they go forward. Jesus sharpens their understanding of the gospel of his death and his resurrection. He commissions them as witnesses to the world. And there's a reminder of the promised Holy Spirit in those verses, and he gives them immediate instructions to wait. To wait for what? To wait to be clothed with power from on high. Whoa. That sounds awesome. But maybe not in the same way that we might at first think about it. Pick up in verse 50. Here's the, here are the last couple of verses from Luke's gospel before he transitions into the book of Acts. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. 
It's just one verse. Jesus goes to heaven. It's a very brief mention of the ascension at the end of Luke's gospel that that he's going to expand a little bit more when we turn the page into the book of Acts chapter 1. So look at Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And I'll just go ahead and read through verse 14. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heavens as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So the disciples get about six weeks with the resurrected Jesus to know him as their resurrected Lord and to try to, try to begin to understand what life in his kingdom is going to look like. They, they have this opportunity to experience what the latter Apostle Paul aspires to in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, when he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I think that's what they're, that's what they're trying to, to get their minds around. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what we want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection? You know, in all four Gospels, Jesus promises that he and or his Father will give them the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has always been around. We know that. He has always been active from creation all the way through here to Jesus' earthly ministry. What Jesus did, he did by the power of the Spirit. But ten days after Jesus' ascension, the Spirit will come in a new and a distinctive way. He will be given with signs that fulfill prophecies. He will indwell believers, bringing about God's own desire to be present with his people. This is going to happen soon, not many days from now. So he orders them to stay in Jerusalem and wait for it. Wait for what? 
the birth of the church through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what's going to happen on the day of Pentecost. And then we have these questions and answers about the kingdom. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You have to to accept that the disciples are pretty amped up right about now. They're, They're pretty amped up here. I mean, imagine being in their shoes. You were defeated the first time you charged Jerusalem to make Jesus your king, but now your king is immortal. He's bulletproof. Let's make a truly triumphant entry into Jerusalem and get a load of the faces of those religious leaders when they sing that they cannot kill King Jesus. Right? They have high confidence that Jesus is God's promised king, bringing God's promised kingdom. So they ask. The burning question that's on their hearts and on their minds. When are we, the descendants of Abraham, going to finally enjoy the fulfillment of all the promises that God made to Abraham? When will we be delivered from oppression and reign as God's people? Surely, The time is now. Jesus answers, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's a rebuke. It's a rebuke. They know the great promises of God to his people, but they do not understand the greatness of of their fulfillment. They're small-minded. So Jesus says, you think too small. The kingdom of God is not limited to Jerusalem and Judea. The kingdom of God is going to be the whole earth. I'm not just going to restore the golden days of King David and King Solomon. I did not come to restore a nation's glory. I have come to gather all of the nations. I have come to restore the whole of creation. The fulfillment of God's promises will be to people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation who come to the king by faith in the promises of salvation that he has made. And God's glory will fill the whole earth and it will be paradise again. Jesus believes in the absolute sovereignty of God. Did you get that? I I wonder the extent of the sovereignty of God. Jesus believes in the complete sovereignty of God. We can't help but remember Jesus' response to this same question back in Matthew chapter 24 and Mark 13, which is, no one knows the days or the hours. No man, no angel, not even the Son, but the Father only which perplexes us a little bit at the time, but Jesus was speaking in his self-limited role as the incarnate Messiah. Both there and here, Jesus is emphasizing that the Father alone has fixed things by his authority, and so shall it be. The Father has decreed all salvation, and the Father has decreed the timing of all of his decrees. It's built in. They are firmly fixed, 
in the Father's hand by the Father's unalterable authority. There are and always have been people who call themselves Christians who do not like the idea of a sovereign God. They want to control God. They want to sit in judgment of His Word. So a sovereign God is troubling to them. Jesus is teaching at His ascension. His teaching should protect His church from making so many of the mistakes that have been made throughout history. If people would have just paid attention to the ascension. In our day, we have denominations that grew by ignoring Luke's account of the ascension. The Millerites in the mid-1800s and the Adventist movement that followed there spawned multiple failed predictions of Jesus' return. And so to convince their followers that they were not wrong, even though Jesus did not accommodate their predictions, they create new theologies to try to smooth things over, to show that they were actually right, which only leads to more compounding theological errors. Theology is a system. When you change one part, you have to change other parts, such as the Jehovah's Witness, who came from the Adventist movement, believed that Jesus is not deity. He's just another created being. And the Seventh-day Adventist belief that Jesus is judging us right now based on our adherence to the Old Testament Sabbath law, thus promoting a works-based righteousness. I'm not trying to get into the weeds here. And I'm not trying to just bash people. But the point is that the doctrine of the ascension has real and current consequences for the church. The ascension is here to help us from chasing foolishness and being distracted from the mission which Jesus is laying out for his church. You might not have known that the doctrine of the ascension was so essential. It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see, this is what the life of the church is going to look like. The church will be a Holy Spirit-empowered witness to Jesus and his gospel that will cover the whole earth. Jesus is not taking his disciples into Jerusalem to confront the chief priests and the Pharisees. He's not doing that. Instead, he's, he's returning to his Father in heaven. And from there, he will send the Holy Spirit to them. Then they, the fledgling church of the disciples, about 120 believing brothers and sisters, will bear witness to his death, his burial, and his resurrection to the leaders in Jerusalem. They get to do it. And then scatter across the earth to do the same thing. Jesus is commissioning his church. Do not be distracted by things you will not know. If you think you know the date and time of Jesus' return, it is exactly not that date and time. The purpose of your mission is to proclaim Christ to sinners. And the extent of your mission is every tribe, tongue, and nation. And the duration of your mission is until Jesus returns. Whenever that is. The Father will let us know. Jesus is building his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
And as big and as glorious and as exciting as God's purpose is, the disciples probably had a few misgivings. You might also. I mean, Jerusalem is where they put Jesus to death. Legally, as a criminal. Judea is where they are all known and now known as rebels. They've been taught all their lives to hate the Samaritans. So, when they go back to the Samaritans, the Samaritans will return the favor and hate them back. Their consciences have been trained to look upon every Gentile as unteam, as unclean, a spiritual contagion to be avoided. Jesus is calling us, his church, to witness to religious people who have already rejected him. He's calling us to lovingly witness to people who hate us because of him. He's ordering us to witness to every person who is not like us at all and makes us feel uncomfortable when we're around them. We probably have a few misgivings about that from time to time too. Or maybe it's just me. You see, we need something. Just like these disciples, we need something to be obedient to carry out Jesus' kingdom mission as his church. We need to be clothed with power from on high. We need Jesus to ascend to the Father for his church. And we need to understand that in his ascension, in his being taken from us, we don't lose. We gain. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of sight. Now, if the, if the bodily resurrection of Jesus is unbelievable to people today, people you know, then the physical ascension of Jesus uh, just seems pretty darn silly to them. They say, oh, so he rose from the dead, and he just floated up to heaven on a cloud? Well, that's not exactly what it says here. Jesus is lifted up to heaven in glory, just as he said he would be. If he can defeat sin and death and be resurrected from the dead, surely he can defy gravity and rise through thin air. God the Father runs out to receive him in the form of a cloud. Just as the father in the parable of the prodigal son ran out to greet his son. No, Jesus is not a prodigal, but became a prodigal for us. And he is received back, not as a hired servant, but as the father's son. Into the heavenly household. It's a partial fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. Where the son of man comes before the ancient of days with the clouds of heaven. And the disciples beheld this. They fixed their gaze on the king as he ascended to his throne. They fixed their gaze on the spot where they last saw him. You've done that. You're following an airplane or a bird or something, and you're like, oh, that disappeared right here. I'm fixed on that spot. They're doing exactly what all of us would do at that moment, all who love Jesus. It may have felt like a loss. But it was a time to gain. That's a common paradox, isn't it? 
in your Christian life. There are things that seem like loss that end up being gain. There are things that to be gained have to come through loss. Two men stood behind, beside them with white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, that's an affirmation, will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven, that's an assurance. What can we learn from Jesus' ascension? We can learn that it was necessary for the church. In John chapters 14 and 16, Jesus said it was necessary that he go to the Father so that the Father and the Son would send the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will be the presence of God and the power of God in the church. Jesus is now and forever in bodily form. He can only be in one place at one time. That's not a mistake. It's part of the plan. The church needs the Holy Spirit, and that's the next part of the plan. It doesn't seem that long ago that we studied the book of Hebrews. It's it's been a little while. And what is inescapable in Hebrews is that Jesus is present in the heavenly places. It says so over and over and over again. Jesus has entered the heavenly holy of holies, where he has presented his finished work before the Father. He has gone through the heavenly veil so that we are certain that he has gone into that place in our place because we are united in him. There's a man in heaven, an embodied man in heaven, the first fruits of the resurrection, the forerunner, the way. Jesus stands before the Father in bodily form as our eternal sacrifice, serving as our great priest, interceding for us at this moment. We can go a little further. In the book of Revelation, John sees him there. Did you remember that? He's with the Father in in Revelation chapter 5, standing as a lamb as if he were slain. You see, Jesus is not physically present with his people right now. And you say, Scott, we know that. What are we, going back to kindergarten here or something? We know that. We know that. Jesus is with us by the presence of his Holy Spirit. You say, Scott, we know that. We get it. Those are easy ones. Good. But there are entire religions trying to bring Jesus' body back to earth. It is not a small thing that the Roman Catholic Church tries to bring the body and blood of Jesus back to earth in the Eucharist. This isn't a sideshow. This is the center of their worship. Many of you grew up in the Catholic Church. The reason they genuflect, you know this, towards the altar is because they believe that Jesus is physically present through what they call the miracle of transubstantiation. Again, I'm not trying to get off into the weeds or just bash other people's beliefs, but I want you to see the importance of Jesus' ascension. This Jesus has been taken up from you. You will not have his physical presence. You will have his spiritual presence. 
Those who would predict the dates and times that God alone has decreed by his authority want glory for themselves. Those who would claim to grasp hold of Jesus' physical body want glory for themselves. It is Christ's glory, and it is the Father's glory that he has been lifted up. John chapter 12. So Jesus' ascension was a clear and a needed indication of this transition that's taking place in history. Jesus' resurrected body, his bodily presence with his disciples, it was unique and it was momentary. Right? There's, there is this transition period where the resurrected body of Jesus is on earth and he's with his disciples. What will be normative for the church is God with us in the spiritual reality of his indwelling Holy Spirit. That's the transition that's taking place. In fact, that is how Christians are identified. If you are a born-again, blood-bought Christian, if you are part of the body of Christ, you must be indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. This is what Jesus is preparing his disciples for. He is preparing his church for Pentecost. The church needs some means to be united and empowered to carry out Jesus' kingdom mission. And the disciples need to know that it will not be Jesus who is a physically embodied man in heaven. The church's unity and power will come by the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, which will be poured out on them not many days from now. You see, the ascension is not just some interesting but little-known fact in New Testament history. It is the very important and needed event in the Lord Jesus' life and in the life of his church that marks the end of Jesus' direct ministry to his disciples on earth and positions those same disciples, the church, to expect what is about to happen in 10 more days at Pentecost. Because if we are going to be Jesus' witnesses to the ends of the earth, we need him to send us his Holy Spirit. You would eagerly say that you are thankful for Jesus' sin-atoning death on your behalf, wouldn't you? You would eagerly say that you are thankful for life's, Jesus' life-giving resurrection on your behalf, wouldn't you? Well, we should also be thankful for Jesus' ascension. By it, we know that the Father has accepted Jesus' propitiation for our sin. Salvation mission completed. <clears throat> By it, we know where Jesus is. He's where he's supposed to be. We know where Jesus is not and where he's not going until the Father says he can. And this to keep us from grievous errors. And we know that Jesus is coming back. You know, I've always thought that the two men in white robes were angels. And I'm satisfied with that interpretation. But it is interesting that when Luke means angel, he writes angel. But here he writes men. So I've been a little challenged. I'm going to share the challenge with you with this idea. Could these two men be Moses and Elijah? And you know where I'm going with this. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus' glory was revealed to Peter, James, and John, Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets, stood there with Jesus in his glorified presentation. 
during that encounter in Matthew chapter 18, God spoke and he said, this is my beloved son, remember his words. Remember his words, listen to him, remember his words. And so it's interesting to consider here that as Jesus is lifted up, as he's glorified, the Father says, and disappears from their sight, that these two men have the effect of saying, this is God's beloved son, remember his words. Stop staring into the sky. It's time to go to Jerusalem. Look at verse 12 of Acts chapter 1. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Luke lists their names of the disciples, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and their brothers. And all these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together. Being with the resurrected Jesus was wonderful. You remember what he gave them? Peace. He showed up, he said, I give you peace. Being with Jesus has been transforming. He's opened their minds to the scripture. But being with Jesus is now going to be different. He has gone to heaven. He is sending his spirit. We will be his witnesses. I imagine, I imagine one of the disciples you know, writing down this little mantra to try to, here's, this is what we've got to get our minds around. He has gone to heaven. He is sending his spirit. We will be his witnesses. Get this in your head. Get this in your head. He did not hand them the nationalistic triumph they were expecting. He has called them to fight towards a greater triumph. Victory is not now. Victory will be later. It's a bit of a shock to them. In the book of Acts, the gospel never triumphs without God's people, in some sense, bearing the cost with Christ of that triumph. We cannot separate the proclamation from the suffering. Oh, how we want to. And oh, how we're paralyzed when we insist on it. The price of gospel work is costly. It's the cost of taking up our cross and following Jesus. What a shock to the disciple system. Which makes it all the more important that they obey the words of Jesus. You think of You think of police officers, or EMTs, or firemen, or soldiers. When the the battle starts, when 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 the fire's flames rage, they all come out saying, we just relied on our training. We just did what we were taught. Jesus has taught them, and he's given them words, and he's instructed them to go to Jerusalem and wait, and so they they just obey his words. Remember his words. Meditate on them. Your minds, you need to wrap them around this. You can almost almost hear the wheels turning in their heads, can't you? How can we be witnesses to the end of the earth? Our whole understanding and attitude would have to be changed inside out for us to be the people that Jesus wants us to be. How can that happen? We're so small. 
and so weak and the world so dark. And Jesus says, I will give you the spirit of unity to make you big. And I'll give you the spirit of power to make you strong. And I'll give you the spirit of light to keep you true to me. What's our understanding? What's our attitude towards these things? Are we a church turned inside out so as to witness to Christ as he's commissioned us? Have we wrapped our hearts and minds around what God has called us to suffer for the sake of the lost? It was the missionary Hudson Taylor who said, God's work done God's way will never lack God's power. But you have to take the first step of obedience. So they together gather together as Jesus has commanded them. And then they fulfilled the Lord's command to gather and wait by doing something that the Lord did not specifically instruct them to do. They prayed. They prayed together. All 120 of them gathered together, prayed in one accord. In one accord means having one mind. It happens when the church prays together. And what did they pray for? First of all, their one accord prayers needed to be in one accord with Jesus. So that's the prayer dynamic that's taking place. So while individually from time to time they may have prayed many things over the next 10 days, the main topics for one accord praying with Jesus would be Jesus' words at his ascension. Things like, help us to not be anxious that we do not know the days and the times that the Father is fixed by his own authority. Help me to not follow after those who are interested in such things. Click off that YouTube video. Don't go there. It's not helpful. Help us to understand and live in the reality of your resurrection life. And in the power of your resurrection. Because this is all new to us. Send us your spirit as you promised. Oh, how we need him. And give us compassion for the lost. Those people in Jerusalem, those people across Judea and Samaria, those people at the ends of the earth, give us compassion for the lost. Open our mouths to proclaim the gospel to them and grow your church for your glory. See, this is the, this is the small seed planted in the upper room that will burst forth as the New Testament church just days from now when Jesus sends his spirit to them just as he promised. And this is how Jesus has prepared them for these things to come. Their response to Jesus is simple. Not to be confused with easy. Their response to Jesus is simple and yet profound. They obey Jesus' words. It always goes well for you when you obey Jesus' words. Always. They call him Lord and they do what he says. And he's faithful to send two men to give them a nudge if needed. 
and they pray. They engage in devoted and persistent prayer together in one accord. All in anticipation that in response to the obedience of his children and the prayers for his promises to be kept, that the Lord will indeed pour out his spirit upon them and bring about the witness of his gospel to the ends of the earth. You know, earlier I, I mentioned Paul's aspiration, the words in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. You know, that's really just one phrase out of a passage that helps us to understand, I think, what the disciples in the church came to understand. In Philippians chapter 3, if you want to turn there, Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. For what, Paul? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and even his ascension. We thank you that we know where he is and what he's done and that what he has done, he has completed and done well and that you're pleased with him. We thank you that he's in your presence as our eternal sacrifice and as our great high priest. We thank you for the warnings that we would not go astray, wanting to know things that we will not know and cannot know but rather that we would trust, that we would trust God the Father for all things. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that you've given to us. Lord, we pray that you would pour out your Spirit in all in this room, that all might come to salvation in Christ, that we together would proclaim the gospel unashamedly for your glory. We pray you'd make us that church. In Christ's name, amen.